Christ is risen from the dead, trampling on death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling on death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling on death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Sure. Maybe. Could you divide the, these up and staple or somebody else? Certainly. I think it's three pages. So it's being handed out as a church etiquette document. I'm not going to go over it in class, but it is something for you to read and uh, absorb. One of the things I was saying about St. Anne's is St. Anne's, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but a vast majority of the folks here are converts to Orthodoxy. right? So they didn't grow up uh, in the Greek or Serbian or Romanian church, or we have a few who are from Moldova, from Russia, Ukraine, uh, etc. But the vast majority of folks here are converts. So that has, like anything, pluses, strengths and weaknesses, pluses and minuses, right? There's something about uh, knowing your way in Orthodox church that if you actually grew up in the church, you just kind of know it intuitively. Uh, so something like a church etiquette document might be something that gets reminded every once in a while, but with converts, uh, it is something, especially because people come from such different cultural backgrounds and church backgrounds. So I'll give you just one example. In a lot of cultures, and I'm not picking on you because you're doing this, just say that way, it's fine. In Arabic cultures, to sit like this is like you basically throwing the middle finger at them. Do you, do you guys remember the video where uh, George Bush, President Bush, is ducking the guy throwing the sandal at him? It's because you're no better than the bottom of my foot. Uh, in the Antiochian Archdiocese, when they bring guys from like Syria or Lebanon to serve over here, they will sit like this in front of them and just watch them squirm and just saying, you're not over there, okay? You're here. So, but in church, this, what is this? This is a kind of, I, I'm relaxed, right? You're fine. Again, we're not in church. <laughs> but uh, this is not something that you do in church. You don't sit like this. We're going to be talking about the reasons why, basically because it's church, right? <laughs> and we're going to be talking about the layout of the church and, and why it is the way it is. Uh, even uh, sitting is something that is basically if you're sick or old or there's something like physically going on, that's when you typically sit. You're going to find other expressions, especially like in the Greek church in America, uh, where they have pews. A lot of that has to do with uh, fitting in here in North America. You can find chairs more in like Greece because you can move the chairs out of the way because you know what's really prohibitive chairs wise, liturgically wise? Lent. What do we do during Lent all the time? Prostration. Prostrations. Can you do a pr prostration in a pew? No, it's really awkward. It's impossible really. So uh, especially when we're trying to fit as many people in here, we're, we're never going to do pews with aisles. There'll be, there's like chairs or like benches around um, so I'm saying some of this is because this is a document that I haven't released yet, even to the parish, but it's something I'm going to do in little bits and pieces, just as a reminder, good practices. Uh, but it's also something, like I said, uh, as converts, when you're used to, if you're going to a non-denominational church before here, you could drink a latte during the sermon, right? Or put your coffee down and raise your hands during the, the worship songs, right? That's just not the way that we do things. I don't know. I remember the great entrance this morning. You know, 
It's a great entrance. It's focused. And I totally can smell the lasagna back here <laughs> strongly. So that's one of the nice things that will happen in a new building is like the church is separate from the hall because this is not ideal at all, the way that we have things set up. Um, let me just finish this real quick. Does anyone have any questions from last week or anything that has popped up that has them thinking about something or wondering th something? <coughs> All right, what about the reading? I have a question about the reading. Sure. Um, there is this part in the first reading where it says um, <coughs> the bloodless sacrifice of Christ to the Father. Why bloodless? It's not his sacrifice, it's what we are doing on it's the bloodless sacrifice that we just did this morning. Mm -hmm. We're not shedding blood. The blood has already been oh, shed. Oh, okay, okay. Got it. Does that make sense? Understood. In fact, canonically, if I was to cut my hands during the service, uh, if I was to bleed at all on uh, the gifts that are going to be consecrated, like, if that, we'd have to start the liturgy over again. Wow. Because I'm mixing, like, mm -hmm. it's like, I cannot have blood on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just kind of gives you a little <laughs> pinprick <laughs> into the view that Orthodoxy has of the church and what the church building is for, which is very different from, uh, like, it's not a theater, right? It's not an auditorium. Uh, and while we make do with like what we have, the ideal is to actually build a church that is set aside. And eventually, when you consecrate a church, uh, consecrating a church actually means, so there would be relics that would be put into the altar. Uh, the Walter, Walter. <laughs> altar, I was thinking of wall and altar at the same time. The past like three years, I do all these weird like word things where I put the consonants of two words and I switch them around a lot. I don't know why I do that. Um, and there's even a word for it, but I don't remember what it is. Is it Pig Latin? <laughs> no. Portmanteau? Say it again? Portmanteau? I think so. It's something like that where you, like, I just do it without, I've done it during sermons even, and I'm like, okay, why did I just switch the consonants of all the things? That seems like you're thinking more about it and trying to do it like Igpe Atenle, you actually have to think about doing that. Anyways, so you would seal the relics in the altar. This practice of the places where martyrs were uh, is where an altar would go. This goes back really far back in the church. Uh, our Antimension, which is on the altar, uh, you have an Antimension, which basically in Greek means besides the table, and it has on it an icon of the deposition of Christ coming off the cross, uh, him being brought down, right? Because this is basically, it's considered a tomb, which is why uh, when we take the gifts, they're put on a tomb and we're being fed from the life-giving tomb, etc. Uh, we have uh, woven into that relics. If it was a fully consecrated church, it would be in the altar itself. Uh, then on the altar, and all of this, I'm just going to start talking about the church, okay? Uh, all of this is because this is an image or it's hearkening back and echoing the Old Testament temple which is what God revealed to Israel. This is how you're going to worship me. Uh, we have this <coughs> in the Theophanies where God reveals himself, right? It is 
almost always on mountaintops, like Moses, right? He reveals himself to on a mountain. Uh, theophany, like you always have these mountaintop experiences. You have a temple that is basically like what well, is the tabernacle? It's like the the moving dwelling place of God, and eventually he needs to be given a temple, which David is not able to do it because he has too much blood on his hands. So Solomon builds the temple. This is where the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah was on the tabernacle. The Shekinah, the the, the um, holiness of God, the presence of God comes and inhabits the temple. He leaves the temple, right? Uh, this is part of like uh, the language around when Christ is brought back to the temple, that like the glory of God is coming back because Ezekiel talks about the Shekinah leaving the temple, the presence of God. So an Orthodox church is, uh, basically its roots are in Old Testament worship. The basic key is everything is now transformed with the center of it being Christ because he is the key in revelation for everything. So on the altar itself, of course, what is at the center of all things in the Old Testament temple? Do you remember? I know I'm assuming certain things, so if you're like, slow down. We can slow down. There is... The Ark of the Covenant? You have the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, right? And once a year, the high priest was allowed to go in and sprinkle blood on it, basically, as atonement for the sins of the people, right? What was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The cherubim. The cherubim, right? And where does God appear and speak? Between the cherubim, right? Between two angels, the two creatures. This is also then, of course, if you think about uh, the resurrection scene... The whole thing with the angels being where Christ was, that is a, an echoing, right? Christ, <coughs> God, the risen one, the angels are saying, he's not here. Like, he's he's on the move. But that's an echo of God, Christ or God being present. We would say Christ is present through all of this, right? It's not just God and some, but like the, the church teaches all of the theophanies of God and the theophanies of Christ. There, because he is the revelation to mankind, right? Uh, so... You have, uh, what is in the Ark of the Covenant? The Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The bread. Showbread. And the staff, which was Aaron's staff that budded, right? So, all right, what's on an altar in an Orthodox church? The Gospels. The Gospels, right? So, the Commandments. The special piece of clothing. The Antimensium that's underneath, Yes. Is that what the bishops signed? The bishops' mm -hmm. signatures on that—that's that. how you know that I'm signature? allowed to do okay. liturgies. I can't just willy-nilly do what I want. I'm not a Presbyterian <laughs> or a Baptist. I, I, the bishop says you have a blessing to serve liturgies. Okay. This kind of labra that is typically like right off the back uh, of the altar. We have it here because we just don't have enough space. But the candelabra that was also in the temple, right? Do you know what the, the candelabra was an image of? And it's very clear in like the Old Testament what it's an image of. <clears throat> it's the tree of life. Because it is, that's why it has like leaves on it and things. So that is like the light of the temple is the tree of life. Uh, that when we go into the temple, we're going back. Because the temple is basically Eden. Uh, if you read Genesis and you're thinking of all of Israel, you'll see how Genesis, the way that God is building creation, is basically like he's building a temple. And then he rests, which resting means he does this. He's enthroned. Right, this is not a throne, obviously, but he's enthroned. This is comfortable, though. Uh, <laughs> the, 
so what we have in the high place back behind the altar uh, would be the throne where the bishop would typically be seated. We don't have space here. <laughs> well, we would have a throne, basically. Uh, where God and the divine council, you have when, it just all goes back to Genesis, right? When God makes man and woman, right? And he uh, is talking about it, right? He says, let us make that is the first of the divine council, which is basically Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The divine council is basically the <coughs> the king's room, right, where his throne is. This is again and again, like uh, Job, um, any time that there's interactions with Isaiah's vision is especially important for this, where he sees the temple filled with the train, uh, you know, the, the robe. Uh, he's enthroned. Uh, this is always the vision of God enthroned. It's, it's Jesus enthroned. How did you call it? The what council? Divine council. Divine council. This is also, I'll bring this up and talk about this with regards to Theotokos when we get to her closer to the Dormition, the Feast of the Dormition. Um, this is what heavenly worship is. If you hear it in the liturgy, right? The angels are present in the throne room of God. Job, right? God allows, and if you remember the story of Job, God allows Satan into the divine council to say, like, say, okay, I bless you, basically, to go after Job. Uh, you have that this is the cornerstone for all of our worship. So we have on the altar, in the presence of God, all of our liturgy, all of our prayers just reverberate with this, right? Uh, what you have is you have the, the Gospels, the commandments of Christ, right? The Ten Commandments. You have the cross, which is basically Aaron's budding rod that sits on the altar. You have in the tabernacle that sits, uh, the tabernacle is the little church-looking thing that's on the altar. That is where we hold uh, the body and blood of Christ that was pre-sanctified, <coughs> excuse me, on Holy Thursday. For if you're sick or in the hospital or, God forbid, dying, then I would come while you're still conscious and give you, give you for us, last rites is giving you Holy Communion. Um, yes? I was going to ask, why of all the things that the tabernacle could be used for, why the element for the sin? I mean, I find it very uh, touching because it's like a special place for the needy or the, the sick, but why? It is the presence, well, one, it's to keep it away from anything else. It is enshrined on the altar because it's his body and blood that's always there. It's the reason why when you see, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I have to go faster. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you, you will see very often when people come across the middle of the church, they will make the sign of the cross and bow because there's a presence on the altar of Christ's body and blood that is present there. This is the jar of manna. It's just like the Ark of the Covenant. I'm trying to draw all this all of it into, we are pilgrim people. We have the Ark. Well, do you know what the church, who the church regards as the Ark of the Covenant? Mary. 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 It's all through the Feast of Mary. Uh, this Because we'll read the Psalms and talks about uh, the Ark, uh, the son, the, the queen's mother, uh, sorry, the king's mother having a great place of honor and authority in the Old Testament. This is one of the things about uh, orthodoxy. It'll make you go back and read scriptures that you already thought you knew really well, and then you go back and you're like, wait a second, there's this theme of like the queen, the king's mother all through here. What is going on here? Uh, when I put uh, in Proscomedie, which is the preparatory service uh, before the liturgy begins to basically set up everything, there is a, a piece of bread that is put aside for the mother of God. 
and I say uh, a quote from the Psalms, uh, the queen arrayed in golden robes all glorious, which is basically what I say as, as I put down the bread that is commemorating her on uh, the discos. So the whole layout of an Orthodox church from the Holy of Holies, which holds all of the holy things where God is enthroned, where we are fed from the uh, altar. We then have the nave, which is kind of this in-between space, which is where the people of God are. Uh, then we have the narthex. We don't have a narthex here because we killed it for space. Mm -hmm. <coughs> the narthex is this liminal, it's this in-between space where you still have the world is present. Uh, and then uh, you can see this in a lot of churches that even in the narthex they'll have uh, in, in Greece and in Romania I've seen uh, like Plato, Aristotle, like icon. They're not icons because they don't have halos, but they're seen uh, as preparing the way. Because the Orthodox Church understands other wisdom traditions to be preparatory things for the full revelation. Has anyone read Dante's Inferno? Yes. Right? Who's, who is this, the great image of this in that book? Especially Inferno. It's Virgil, right? It's a pagan. But he's leading him. He's like his muse, his guide, right? He doesn't get him out of Inferno, but... This is the same way that the church has this idea the narthex is this kind of place of the world. You'll even have like images of kings and things <coughs> or people who don't. I saw it in a church in Romania. I think it was the back wall of the narthex. The family that had given most of the money to the church. And it's like they looked like 1990s people. They're painted on the back of the church in the narthex because they're the ones who gave the money and they want to be remembered. And they're going to be always remembered uh, in the offering of the Eucharist. So... At the center of everything in the Orthodox Church, uh, this is what Father Thomas Hopko in the book, he's talking about the fundamental experience is God is with us, right? God is present with us. He's enthroned on the altar. This is why in most Orthodox churches, uh, the big dome at the center of the church has Christ Pantocrator, the, the ruler of all things, because he's basically holding all things together. It's like his head is up there because we're the body and everything is being subsumed, and he's usually like blessing us from above. Uh, this is why, uh, this is also why we have all the icons. Icons, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of windows into heaven, <coughs> but there's a sense that icons depict for us the reality that we are, and coming together on a Sunday morning, we are surrounded by the whole hosts of God's friends, God's people those who have gone on before us. Because as Jesus says, they're, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living, right? It's not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or somehow in the past, out of sight, out of mind. They are living in Christ. So we depict the heavenly scene, the, the whole, all those who've gathered together at Mount Zion, right? Like Hebrews, the hall of, of fame, right? The hall of faith is that kind of colloquial way of talking about it. Uh, that is why we depict everyone in icons. That's one of the major reasons why. Uh, this all is because Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Uh, but we were already talking about, this is something I think people forget. If you look at the Old Testament uh, in uh, the description of what was in the temple, we think that there was no depiction of anything whatsoever in the temple. But you realize the temple was full of depictions of all sorts of things. There's angels, the, the there was just a lot of things <laughs> going on in the temple that I think would make 
most Protestants today, if they were to go back to the Old Testament temple, they would be a little freaked out and think it was pagan, but it wasn't, right? Any questions about any of that? You can see why a church etiquette document, <coughs> especially because our society, we don't really have etiquette anymore, right? Uh, and I don't just mean like how we dress, I just mean how we interact with people. Uh, we don't say yes sir, yes ma'am, we don't, I mean there's things that happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this. You know Protestants used to say father and master and stuff to like uh, clergy, this was, mister comes from master, right? Uh, father was a or a pastor or reverend all of these these things everybody did it it's not until like very recently a lot of this stuff just went away we're talking about like our grandparents and our great grandparents that's when a lot of this stuff went away so uh, orthodox church this, this doesn't mean that you need to like come in a tuxedo <laughs> right uh, and etiquette is way more than just what you're dressed like but it is about how you pay attention, really, and how you respect a space. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges we have at St. Anne's uh, is just we have a lot of little kids, and that's what is usually the source of <laughs> chaos and noise. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we have also the reason why. Um, Priests and clergy, etc., dress the way they do, they do is because priests in the Old Testament dressed, I say fancy, I guess. They, they had specific clothing that was dedicated to the service that they did. So what a priest has on, <coughs> uh, this is a lot of Greek terms, okay? But basically what a priest has on, the I'll wear like a white, uh, over this I'll have like a white kind of, robe on, which is called a sicarion, which is basically, it, it's a symbol of a baptismal garment. Um, they don't have an epitrahelion on, which is an ancient sign. You'll see this in Methodist churches even to this day, right? <coughs> you might be more familiar with the Western term stole. This was a sign of uh, leadership and pastoral ministry. I think a lot of the icon of Christ, the Good Shepherd, where he has the sheep over his, that there's this sense of like there's a yoke on you and there's like responsibility that you have. So the priest has that on. A, a bishop will have an epitrahelion and the omophorion on, which is, we will say we're under the authority of a bishop, will say like, I'm under the omophorion of Archbishop Alexander, right? I'm under his pastoral care. Uh, I'll then have a belt that basically keeps my epitrahelion from going all over the place. Uh, have cuffs on that basically because of sleeves and things just keeps things uh, out of the way and then a felonian is basically the big kind of cape I'll just call it a cape for lack of a better word That's cool. uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a cape on that has crosses on it instead of an S uh, <laughs> and this is if you've ever seen a Roman Catholic church what we wear is not that different actually it just developed differently uh, the chasuble in the Roman church is what the Flonian is in the Orthodox church. Um, there's a lot of other things uh, that we can talk about, but uh, did you guys have any questions about any of the interior of a church? Even here, like the interior of a church, what <coughs> churchly wear is, etc. Yeah. The reading used the term vestibule. Is that synonymous with narthex? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? When you build the new church, 
or is it going to have a dome, or is it going to be? With it all depends. Everything is like twice as much right now okay. to build. So the first building that we're building is not going to be the church. Church. Okay. Right now, if we're going to build, we need to build the church for like three hundred people. That means like five to six thousand square feet. That means three hundred dollars a square foot, typically. And that's not even doing it very ornate. So we're we're, tr we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> Nobody saw COVID coming. <laughs> that's that's what has made everything like a building that was built before, like a nice church that could fit like two fifty built for 1.7 million now it's like 3 million easily and our money isn't worth as much as it used to be on top of it <laughs> so you can have ornate churches right there's this the discussion in the book about the ornateness of the church and a lot of that is also because we get to see churches hundreds of years after the fact so uh, that also might mean a family or two that have means but you can also see uh, churches rural parts of Orthodox countries. <coughs> They're not well appointed, but they are lovingly taken care of. You go to Alaska, you got a lot of old churches that were built a long time ago, and they are nice for what they are, uh, but they had what they had, and they did the best that they could at the time. So, one thing I think of uh, Americans were used to be able to like build quick and cheap and easy, and it's this is starting to slow down a little bit. But uh, it is ideal to have a dome, but it is not a necessity. I'll just say this in general about Orthodox things. When somebody says an Orthodox church has to have X, I can give you 1,500 examples that are not exactly like that. For example, every Orthodox church, they have a dome and they have the Pantocrator in, in the dome. That's not true. <laughs> you, I've seen all sorts of things in the dome. You just have the angels up there and they don't have Jesus up there. Does that mean they're like denying the Orthodox faith? No, there's just differences. <laughs> well, the Greek church that I converted in, they are in such a financial mess right now. It's, yeah, that's their it's church what? is very beautiful and ornate, and I mean it's just unbelievable when you walk into it. But it's and then, but the thing is also upkeep for these. Yeah. When you build behemoth buildings, they're expensive to keep up. <coughs> so the other thing is when people say Orthodox iconography has to look like X, Y, and Z. That's not also always true okay so this is always my thing don't always believe everything you read on the internet okay my wife and i we visited a greek orthodox parish in new junction uh colorado tiny parish extremely ornate but they found a cheaper way to make a dome with like a more yeah. modern yep. style and i guess that's more affordable but it looks so beautiful yep that's in new junction great great junction yeah, Grand Junction. The one in what were you calling it? New Junction. Nice. The one in Columbia, South Carolina, the Holy Apostles. They it's a very blue collar church uh, <coughs> that that they've done a lot of the work themselves. They made a dome out of an old TV dish. Nice. Found wow. a way to suspend it, and it looks beautiful. But they just yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, it, more more important than any of that is I've been in some of the most glorious churches in all of Europe and. Sunny morning, they are empty. Yeah, they're museums, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so there, there's there's more to it than just having mm -hmm. the having all the money you spend on it. Yeah. And you can see there's a lot of different Orthodox architecture over time, <coughs> trying to keep the tripartite, because uh, you know narthex nave 
uh, holy place, uh, you almost always will have nave and holy place, right? You have and you have some kind of divider, uh, which is just like in the Old Testament. Uh, there is a sense of things that are holy are set aside and there's something that's reverence given. For example, only ordained clergy. That means basically, and a subdeacon basically has to have a blessing to even get things off the altar and they're really only blessed to do like very specific things off the altar, like the bishop's candles. Um, but no one's supposed to touch the altar. It is only priests and deacons that are supposed to touch the altar. Um, you can think of this in historical terms, right? Like what, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but basically no one's supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. You had a fellow who touched the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament and he struck down dead. Uh, so there is very much a sense of like, <coughs> when something is set aside and it is holy and it needs to be set aside as something holy, it is something that is reserved. Uh, there, There's always a question of like, can women go into the altar? Women can go into the altar if they have a blessing to go into the altar. If we're at a convent, where it's basically nuns, the nuns are in the altar. The nuns will even do sensing because it's a it's a convent. And basically, the priest is basically has his particular authority, but the abbess, ha in many ways, is a above him and has an authority that he does not have in a convent. Uh, so what you have in an Orthodox church is uh, creating a space and setting it aside and sanctifying it. And when a church is consecrated, a church is actually baptized and chrismated, basically. The, the, all the walls, the, the altar is uh, basically uh, washed with wine. Uh, it is sealed with oil. And it is basically, the walls are all basically blessed with water. It's basically washed and then uh, sealed with chrism. So it's basically the church itself is baptizing Christmas. The bishop here. comes to that. Yeah, right? yeah. I, a priest can't do that. Yeah, the priest, the <coughs> one of the prerogatives, the bishops have prerogatives to basically uh, run a diocese, uh, ordain priests, uh, and consecrate churches. I think those are basically the three things that bishops can do that priests cannot do. The priests that serve at the pleasure of the bishop. So, <coughs> God's uh, Christian symbols, this is, I believe, the second portion, uh, God always mediates his presence via physical things. Uh, there's just this strand in modern Christianity, uh, and I think it's this emphasis on interiority, which is important, right? Like, you need to pray and encounter God here. But you don't live in this invisible space. You live interacting with, right? You don't get married to an idea. You're married to a person, and that's a sacrament. So, just like Communion is not just a spiritual, you know, invisible communion. It's something that requires bread and wine that is then transformed into the body and blood, right? The sacraments, this is all through the Old Testament, right? God uses all sorts of physical things, acts. Uh, I don't know why, but I grew up, the way I grew up in uh, Christian circles, the sacramental view of reality was just not on our radar. It was all about morals and like some ideas that you had. Versus, like, God is present everywhere, filling all things, and he sets aside particular things to make his presence known to us. <coughs> Bread, uh, wheat, wine, oil, water, flowers, fruits, right? These are all, if you just go through the Old Testament, he mediates his presence, right? How does he make kings? He anoints them with oil. How are you made into a king or queen in God's presence? You're chrismated with oil, right? Um, this is... Uh, the basic way in which Christian worship has always functioned. 
there's always around these particular physical actions, which is, of course, why we need to be present in church to be able to access the things that are happening. It's not just our minds or our feelings. It's what's actually being done on our behalf for us that we then participate in, right? What symbols have you seen at St. Anne's or things that you've experienced at St. Anne's that you have a question about or just something that that struck you as something different from your background? Yeah, Sebastian. Something different from some other Orthodox churches, an image of God the Father on the cross. I've been wanting to ask about it. <laughs> Did we talk about that last week? I feel like I, I just talked about this. But maybe it was at, like out there at a table or something. <laughs> uh, so the depiction of God the Father is a depiction well there's all sorts of debate about whether it's God the Father or not so there is because if you look at the book of Daniel or you look at the book of Revelation how is Jesus depicted the lamb is slain yes me saying the book of Revelation is like opening up like an entire like set of images Uh, the ancient of days which what is what does his hair look like it's white, like white, right? It's like lightning white. So there is this debate. It's like, is that God the Father? Or is that Jesus being depicted as the Ancient of Days? So there's one thing. The more easier explanation that I have found and is you have folks who are not a fan of doing this, that they say it breaks the canons of the church and it's not something that should be done, is that they picked it up from Roman Catholic influence where they like to depict very famous, especially like Renaissance Baroque images of God the Father, the old guy, holding Jesus on a cross and then like a, a dove flowing down between right? So you get the Trinity. The Orthodox Church is typically, this is what I'm saying, like, when I say Orthodox equals X outside of like ecumenical councils, when I'm talking about painting stuff on a wall, I can't account for everything that you might find in some random village in Serbia, okay? <laughs> so you will find depictions, because Russian influence, that is an old Russian cross. Uh, they'll have a depiction of, and you'll find folks who's like, it's absolutely the Ancient of Days, it's Jesus, it's not God the Father, because we cannot depict the Father because he's not supposed to be depicted. Right, Jesus is the one who revealed Himself to us. It's how we know who God the Father is when we look, contemplate the face of Jesus. Right, the, the Scripture. So I'm not a fan of it. I would never put an icon or do any kind of painting that way. So that's what's going on. So I think it's just a Catholic influence. At the end of the day, really. Thank you. And they probably even had Catholic painters doing it in some of those churches back in the day. Because if you look at the the Kremlin, the Kremlin just means fortress, right? It, it, like uh, in in Moscow, uh, most of the architects for those churches, you know where they came from. <coughs> and you look at them and you take off the like Russian cupolas, you're like, yeah, that's an Italian building, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And they just put Orthodox stuff inside of it. It's beautiful. I've been there. That's very nice. Any other? experiences or questions or what is that so, so in a lot of the icons <coughs> of Jesus there's like those letters yeah what are they because right. it, it's not Alpha and Omega I mean some of them have Alpha and Omega but that's so that is Jesus Christ Son of God Jesus Christos oh, okay. the ICXC or did you mean the letters round the top of his head yes uh, the whole on is what that, that's on our, our icon of Jesus 
The Ho'on means I am. Okay. I, I am the existing one, right? Exodus, how God reveals himself to Moses. And then there's a lot of I am statements through the Gospel of John, too. And the Theotokos, usually what you'll see, <coughs> Mater Theon means Mother of God. And you'll see, like, this is Ho'agio, uh, like, it's holy. What happens is they get fancy with their letters and they kind of hide the letters in Greek and Cyrillic because it makes it, they can do cool looking, like, it almost looks like symbols, but it's just the letters put together. <coughs> English, it's hard. Like we don't really do that. Yes, 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 yes. That's mater and theon, so mother of God. So, uh, M, R, uh, theta, uh, is it epsilon? So. Is that uh, related to um, the Hebrew? That they uh, uh, omit vowels? That's a great question. No, my understanding is that's just a way that they can, like, initials. It's like an acronym that they, like, almost all icons of the Mother of God, that's probably just rubbed off. They'll have somewhere that it, this Mater Theon on it. So, was there any questions? Wait, I have a second class to go for sacraments. I'm just trying to go. Okay. So, I'm going to go over a typical... Is there any other questions about the church building? Layout, why we do what we do? Lighting candles. Why do people light candles? Candles. Well, candles... I think I have a thing in here on candles. Candles are symbols of prayers. Just like incense is an understanding of like offering of prayers, so lighting a candle is a way of symbolizing prayer. So it is an ancient way to go to a place like a shrine or here, light candles as you're doing when you pray. I, everything entering into a church, this is where we'll get into our basically start like a, a typical weekend at St. Anne's. <coughs> when, do, when does Sunday morning begin in the Orthodox Church? No, nope. Saturday. 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 It's okay. Yeah. Uh, the way I even worded the question was kind of a trick question, right? When does Sunday morning begin? Uh, Vespers on the night before, because it's the Jewish way of keeping time. It's also the church's way of keeping time. So last night at Vespers, we're commemorating all of the saints for today, not yesterday. Uh, if you've ever noticed, we read the ninth hour before Vespers. Uh, we don't read the hymnody or the hymns for uh, the saints that we're going to commemorate Vespers because the ninth hour we're still on the day before, right? So when we uh, do great Vespers, and it is always a good goal, actually, in preparation for Sunday, is to come to great Vespers because it is part of the process of preparation for a Sunday. So coming and entering into a church, it is very easy and is always a struggle because we are distracted people right? And we feed our distraction a lot. We have a lot of things that we put in front of us to distract us. Uh, <coughs> coming to church is something that we need to prepare for behind, uh, beforehand instead of waiting until you get inside the church, which is something like if you're like listening to heavy metal or rap or something and you're like going 10 miles over the speed limit and like you know, into the spot and then kind of run in, it's going to take you 15 minutes to actually be present, you know? <coughs> And as the older you get, you start realizing how much your mind is always behind your body. 
and it's not actually ke keeping up and to be able to actually be present to what is happening actually takes intention mm -hmm. and so coming to church is partly you really need to have intention because it's one thing to get here that's great you've gotten here but you can come here for 45 50 minutes and walk out and nothing has happened inside because you're just kind of interacting in this kind of right so prayer itself i'm sure you're discovering in prayer prayer is hard to actually focus and pray to god as opposed to all the other things that crop up so coming to church and being mindful, prayerful, reverent, uh, and being in a space in such a way to actually encounter uh, God is a constant spiritual struggle. The fathers talk about this. And when we do our prayers, when we come to church, it is the constant taking our mind from distraction and multiplicity and bringing it back to unity and paying attention. So this is just a don't wear lipstick to church. Uh, if you really feel like you need to, uh, then don't kiss things or wipe, you know, daub your lips because actually this isn't just being a pious thing. You can destroy the icons with lipstick, especially the new stuff, right? Uh, I don't know what they did back in the day, whatever, but I'm sure there's probably some stern monk who's saying like, get, or they didn't have lipstick. but yeah, they, <laughs> no, no makeup, right? Like take it off. Uh, but specifically lipstick because it just destroys the icons and we have some nice icons that are hand done okay um, there is a need in coming in to remember uh, Moses and, the, and the, the burning bush like there's holy ground there's a sense of like this space it is hard here because we double use this space and it's not ideal but uh, hopefully in the future that won't be the case so how, when you enter a church, what are the actions that you do when you enter a church? Sign of the cross. Make the sign of the cross when you enter into the church. Three times I do pray. Yeah, you can do it three times. There is, uh, how do you make the sign of the cross? I'm going to go over some real basic stuff just to make sure that everybody's on the same page, okay? Make the sign of the cross, three fingers, right? You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? <coughs> Why do we do it like this? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you also have folks who will say, like, this is the two natures of Christ, right? His divinity and humanity. I think, whatever. <laughs> Why the, I, I don't think that's actually what's going on, but that's fine. It's a nice, nifty little thing to tell your kids one day, okay? Uh, when you make the sign of the cross, this is something that you should do with intention, right? Are you every single time going to be, like, really prayerful? No. Does making the sign of the cross help you to be prayerful? Yes. Should we do it always prayerfully? Yes. So it's something I, I call this, don't do the fly swatter thing, which is kind of the like, you can see this, right? It's just like, I don't know you see people that are just like, and it's just like, what are you? What? Oh, you made the sign of the cross. Okay. It also doesn't mean that when you make the sign of the cross that you're like, <clears throat> making the sign of the cross. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as if you're like a robot or like you're being really pious and intentional about it, just do it in a normal way, you know, that you're being prayerful about it. When you go up to kiss an icon, don't kiss the face of the icon. You kiss either like a hand or maybe a foot, like Jesus's foot dangling there, that's dangling there, kind of so you can kiss his foot. Um, uh, when you greet an icon, when you are here, I'll just do all of this right here. You know, 
you're greeting an icon, and when I say greeting an icon, and not always can you do this, but it's something that you're like, oh, it's St. Nicholas. And you're like, pray to God for me, St. Nicholas. So then you make the sign of the cross. You can either, there's like two basic ways to do it. You do it twice, right? Make the sign of the cross, and then you kiss. Like his hand that's blessing or the gospel book, and then you do it one more time. The other way you can do it is three times and then kiss, okay? Um, when you walk into a church, <coughs> because we killed the narthex, and I, I moved things out of the middle of the church over to the side, uh, you can go and greet the icons over that's on the side where the hospitality of Abraham, the Trinity uh, icon is. Uh, and then you move into the center of the church and you would go and you would first venerate the center icon. Then you go over to the right to Jesus. And then when you cross over, you would, you know, make as you're crossing over, you make the sign of the cross. Uh, and then you three times the mother of God over there. Okay. Uh, there is in doing this, there are folks who have. I kind of messed up the flow by when I moved the memorial table over because a lot of people would go there and then like kiss the cross. <coughs> this is one basic uh, rule of thumb. When So for like at Vespers or like Vigil, say the priest is out here and there's the icon right there, you would never walk between the priest and the open doors and the, and the altar behind the icon. That is just like... Basically, when the bishops here, for example, I never get in the way of his his. It's just rude. It's just not what we do. It's disrespectful, right? Like there is a certain way when you would go into a church. When would be a proper time to light candles during the gospel reading? No, right? Well, you see this some places, sometimes, somewhere. Yeah, you probably are. Okay, uh, should you do that? No, don't do that. Uh, one of the things you will see in the etiquette is like being on time for the beginning of the service so that you can go ahead and be prepared as opposed to coming in and doing all those things. Uh, being able to light your candles, being able to then enter and receive the blessing at the very beginning with blessed is the kingdom. We do the hours beforehand. Uh, those are preparatory things. If you're able to come, come. It is good to have your mind right and have it ready to enter into the liturgy. Uh, I start off with uh, Vespers because it really is kind of an assumption of going to Vespers. Uh, you'll see there's a, a quite a difference in attendance on a Saturday night Vespers here versus a Sunday morning. That is typical, but I will tell you that St. Anne's actually has a very high level of participation on a Saturday night <coughs> Vespers and if you go somewhere else. There are three basic levels of, of um, making the sign of the cross and bowing. They're called matanyas in Greek. You have the kind of basic where you're just kind of doing this. You have a more deeper one that is kind of like this. And then you have a prostration, right? Prostration is like when the cross is brought out uh, during Feast of the Cross. When it's a major feast, uh, you would do like major prostrations. Uh, we'll have the Dormition of Theotokos that we'll have out an epitaphios or like a, a burial shroud for the Mother of God. You would do prostrations and venerate it. Yes. Like, would it be improper to do a prostration in, in normal Sunday if the person wants to? Or? We, we are not supposed to do full prostrations on Sundays. Unless it's like a Sunday at the cross and then we do prostrations. That is because, this is St. Basil's canon basically, we don't do prostrations on Sunday because it is the day of resurrection. Alright, so there's all these little 
this is me giving the, the, the lowdown. Like, there's always little examples of the contrary. I'm sure you've noticed on Sundays here that after consecration, I will do a full prostration. That's just kind of what we do. But I haven't been doing during Pascha because Pascha is very much like there's no prostrations that we're supposed to be doing liturgically whatsoever during the Paschal season. We get, we get prostrations back, and this is why the kneeling prayers at Pentecost, where we do all the prayers, we're kneeling because we're going back to prostrations and kneeling. Yeah. Uh, uh, I noticed uh, when saying uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's usually the uh, smallest level, and then uh, with uh, Holy Mighty, Holy Mortal, uh, a deeper, so, a deeper vow. Yeah, there are certain times you can say like there's the basic invocation, uh, and then there's the kind of like that or the 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 true begin. Let us uh, lay us all our earthly cares. You'll see people who do more there. Um, yeah. Two questions. One, mm-hmm. is it okay to do full prostrations in our personal prayer life? Yeah. Even during okay, just not liturgically, as you said. Yeah, I, I will even tell suggest to people. I mean, it's not like you don't sin during the Paschal season, right? Unless somebody's here already, like, theosized. That's not a real word. <laughs> right? So, divinized. Uh, I, what, I, what I suggest at those times, if it's something, if there's particular struggles with things, I might su- suggest doing some prostrations. I'll typically, even outside of the Lenten season, not during Pascha, but uh, when we get back to kind of normal time, uh, or like post Pentecost, I, I will suggest to people to do the, uh, Saint Ephraim's prayer, a Lord and Master of my life, take from me, because it's just an awesome prayer and it covers almost everybody's problems. <laughs> so why not do it? And prostrations, you have the fathers all over the place talking about prostrations in the place of our spiritual life. Because what else bodily, like you are saying, like you are God, and I'm going to physically prostrate myself before you. It also wears you out just good for you yeah you have mentioned how the memorial of the cross was moved and so i'm not sure if we are supposed to venerate that before the other three icons in front of the altar or after or if it's optional it's optional okay you can do whatever you want i just the typical is center right left and then whatever other thing you're going to do so what you could do is like you go to the mother of God and then you might come around I don't know what other people are doing because my back is turned all the time and you could walk over there and do it right. there might be people who are going to Jesus then going over there and going to the Mary I honestly don't know Okay. Some people, I don't do that some people <laughs> kiss or they like put a yeah. kiss on certain places or more than one and is that just up to dealer's choice this is where there's just piety in orthodoxy and people express it if outside of a few things. Could it be cultural? I'm not like legislating. It's yeah, it's cultural. Hey, there's people kissing holy things. That's already countercultural mm-hmm. in this area, you know? Yeah. I've been wanting to, to ask, why is there a moment in the liturgy where the curtain in the center is closed halfway? That's why only during pre-sanctified liturgy. Why halfway? That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> it is there is a sense in which having it's not the anaphora we veil and unveil stuff all the time and I don't know exactly why it is just halfway it's just what the tradition is to do because it's pre-sanctified that is honestly the, the best thing that I know how to answer that outside of just we veil and unveil stuff all the time I mean there are plenty of OCA churches at seminary we didn't have a veil at all on the, the door. So 
I got used to veiling with the, the door veil coming here. <coughs> and you'll find other Russian churches that veil even more than I do and don't open the doors as much as I do. Well, it's true in the Our Father uh, that we, that we and, it, and it's like a, it's like an anticipation. It's the, 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 what about the Our Father? Yeah, because, because the, the altar is still closed, but we're, the Our Father is not closed at the Our Father. No, I mean, it's halfway closed during the Our Father, I believe. You mean talking about pre-sanctified? Pre-sanctified, yeah. Basically, it's done right at the litanies before. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, it's an anticipation that we're, 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 we're about to receive the holy gifts now, I think. I think it's interesting that where we place the Our Father in general and all the liturgical stuff, we do it after the consecration because we have been brought into the bosom of the church, basically, and we're now able to say Our Father. Historically, catechumens were kicked out of the church at catechumens depart. I like what we do now because it makes it seem natural when I say catechumens depart and you go back to where you stand. Uh, but historically, they weren't just kicked out as in, like, get out of here, you know. But it was... <laughs> We're now entering into the anaphora, and we're entering into the holy of things that you can't have access to. They kick me out. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah, my old parish. There are churches that are still <laughs> will I think escort. As we slowly evolve, we're going to lose. I'm afraid we're going to lose more and more of the respect as our culture keeps going. Well, I mean, the thing is, we're talking about something that went away like uh, 1,500 years ago. So, the the reality of the catechumens withdrawing was a lost thing because a lot of churches didn't have catechumens for a long time because they were always baptizing their babies. But I mean even simple, not just the catechumen thing, but I'm, I'm just afraid that with our, the way our culture is going that we're just going to, not well, it doesn't mean the, anything anymore. The, 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 not on my watch, not here. <laughs> so, I mean, most people are here because they went the yeah. opposite direction than right. what the culture is I going for right now. I want when I come to church, I want to feel like it's something not sacred. Friday not night or Thursday morning. And <laughs> so let's see here. Um, so preparation for uh, divine liturgy. Uh, the evening before is something where I always basically advise like that is not a night like it's your you know. One of the things in just being Orthodox, your whole basic routine in many ways can start, it gets changed up. Uh, in America, what is a Friday night? Go That's, out and have fun. Go out and have fun, right? Like, if you're already heading on Thursday night, then it's Friday night. That's like the night to go do everything, the date and all that stuff. Well, we almost always have Friday night fasts. So, I'm not saying go break the fast. There are going to be times where it's like good for your marriage to go out and have a date and it's a Friday night. Like you can still, you know, get shrimp and if it's steaks, whatever, like I'm not here. I'm not the fasting police. That's not the point of fasting. Okay. But you're going to notice that this changes your basic function. And Saturday night for a lot of folks is kind of a wine. This is a great night. This is a time of preparation. It's like great vespers that it's a night where you're basically preparing for the next day. You have prayers that uh, we have pre-communion prayers. Uh, <coughs> you have long pre-communion prayers. It can last like an hour. I usually suggest that people just do the prayers. There's certain prayers to do before. Uh, so it's like a quiet, not chaotic, and not a ton of media the night before, right? Like cut media out. Uh, the morning before liturgy, we do a complete fast. We do not eat or drink anything before liturgy if we're going to receive Holy Communion. Uh, there can be little edits for this in regards if you're pregnant. Or if you're older, 
or if you're not older and you're taking special medicine that you need to take something to put into your stomach that is something you could talk to me about and you know get a blessing for like some tea and like a piece of toast or something like that right just something in your stomach so that the medicine just doesn't cause chaos right so are you supposed to fast from after great vespers to Mid midnight the night before midnight okay. uh there is a food there's also a sexual fast before receiving holy communion you go back to Exodus and you see them at the mountain. Uh, God is very clear. He says, basically, nobody go home to your wives this night and prepare uh, before you're basically going to encounter God. So this is not just some random rule. This is something rooted deeply in scripture about uh, preparation. Uh, this is not a comment that, like, you know, sex within marriage is bad. It's that it is something that you're setting aside the time. Uh, that you're not entering into that and then also the next morning going to receive communion, okay? So, um, you've probably seen... I need to stop. We'll, we'll finish up a little bit more things. Are there any other questions? The two things that I need to cover next time is prosphora and then greeting and leaving a priest. Should I just do those real quick? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> Prosphora are the little breads that you may be seen over here on the side. This is more of a Russian practice <coughs> for people to uh, commemorate uh, folks, the living and the dead. Uh, it is technically reserved for Orthodox Christians, uh, for those who are commemorated. Uh, uh, it would be really great if you put names on there that are not Orthodox, you say that they're not Orthodox, and you put a little section that's not Orthodox where prayers can be said for them. It's just they're not, there's not particles taken out because they're not going to be forced into a kingdom or something that they weren't a part of or the church. So um, that is what the prosphora, and they're gathered throughout uh, the beginning of the liturgy. This is more of a Russian practice. You're not going to find this in a Greek church. They don't, they don't have the many prosphora. When you greet a priest, uh, it is not when you stand up. It's not like, hi, Father. Right, you make, that makes you feel awkward, doesn't it? <laughs> but it is, when you come up, you put your hand basically like how Rita Gregory is doing, which basically you're making a place for, because when I give a blessing, it is the name of Jesus, right? I-C-X-C, -C, just like on the icon, right? So I'm blessing the name of Jesus because the greeting and the, the kissing of my hand, you're not, like, it's not veneration for me. It is veneration for what my hands do or I'm participating in how God works through me as the priest. So this is the same. You just say, Father bless, and, you, you know, he'll greet you with, you know, the blessing of the Lord or something like Christ is risen and the response. Um, this is not something where it's like every time, like, you come into the room that you need to get a blessing again at seminary because we're all around each other all the time. And we didn't really do this, especially because you'd have seminary mates who might become priests at different times or but before, like, uh, you, you don't like go around asking a blessing every time you run into them or something, right? We basically like, you get a blessing in the beginning of the day and that, that's good. We don't need to constantly uh, at Mount Athos when they're coming out of like Trapeza after the liturgy, you'll have the abbot who basically just stands on the side and he just does this uh, and that is him basically giving the blessing everybody because it's just a, too many people they're just constantly doing this and he just does this and they all walk by while he's basically blessing them okay? Uh, is regular, I'm sure you've probably seen, probably Rita Gregory or a few others, when they're leaving, they'll come and ask for a blessing and give them a blessing when they're leaving. 
So that is the typical way to, when you're encountering a priest for the first time that day, to ask for a blessing. Okay? Any questions about that? Because I'm sure that that might even be awkward for some folks, because it's just... You know, hi, Pastor Bill. You know, that's if I could, if I could yeah, just just a, a, another awkward thing uh, where the bishop is present. Yeah, you ask for the blessing of the bishop and not and not Father. Yep, um, because I get the Father gets the a blessing for the bishops. So. <laughs> it's like I get to be an Orthodox Christian again because I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't bless myself, right? Like, and when I meet another priest, he doesn't bless me. Mm-hmm. We actually, if you're saying, I kind of. Well, I do, we take each other's hands and we kiss each other's hands, basically, because we're reverencing the priesthood that we share, but we don't give each other a blessing. Uh, bishop is where I get to say, you know, Master Bless, and then I get a, a blessing. So, How often does a bishop come? Uh, bishop Grossum should be here in October. That's the plan right now for liturgy, I think on the 8th. Mm-hmm. Does this go for inside the church building and out in public? Mm-hmm. I just saw you swallow. No, 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 that was just coincidence. No, that was... No, so, I mean, the only time that I feel awkward about any of this is because I don't wear this all the time. There are times where I'm just in street clothes, right? If you're in Russia and you're out on the streets, most priests do not wear cassocks around. They, they dress in street clothes because they're not doing church stuff, right? So there's times where I've, like, gone somewhere and there's somebody else there that's Orthodox, and they ask for a blessing, and I'm sure anybody else, like, I'm not dressed like this. It's very obvious I'm a wizard or something because people have no idea sometimes. Or they think I'm Roman Catholic, right? And no, do not, no Roman Catholic priest dresses like this. Uh, this is not the cassocks they wear, but that's being a little pedantic for Baptists to know the difference between Romans and Greek Orthodox. I saw one thing on YouTube where one priest was in the store and somebody went around in the back and yelled out muscle toss because Ma- oh, they thought he was it just totally got I, I was asked if I was a rabbi or something before and I just pulled I was just like Jesus I was at a conference a pretty high government conference in Washington and gone out to dinner that night with my old pastor and, and, uh, and his best friend both were Archimandrides and we pulled into the Omni Shore Motel and got out and they both came and blessed me and kissed me on the forehead. And the secret service were like, oh, what's going on here? Archimandrite is an honorary title for a hierarch monk. A hierarch monk means a monastic monk, uh, a monk who's a priest. Not all priests are, are, not all monks are priests. Although you would all, like, basically ones who have become officially, they're not just novices anymore, they've become monks. They're all called father such and such. It's confusing, I know, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> One day you'll meet an Archimandrite and you won't even think about it because you, you won't say Archimandrite Grossum, uh, mm-hmm. Father Grossum, before he became a bishop and he was not a father, but Bishop Grossum, he was an Archimandrite. It's just an honorary title. Any other questions? All right, next week. Well, it's not next week, actually. Because, uh, let's see here. Let me just make sure what our schedule is. Maybe it is next week. Yes, May 28th is next week. Uh, but then we're going to be off for a week after that because I'm not going to be here. Uh, and so we'll take a week off. Uh, I think basically for Pentecost and I think it's two weeks off, actually. Hmm. What chapters are next week? I left my soul. It's the same two chapters. Where, <coughs> sorry, I'm wrong. Next week is, is a daily cycle of prayer, the church here. And then I have I'll have the morning and evening prayers, a suggested rule of prayer for catechumens.
So we'll be talking about like Vespers, hours, those things, and then the church year, where we'll talk about all the feasts of the church year. Okay. Is the reading accessible, doable, manageable? Okay. I felt I, I I'm liking this a little bit more than the Frederica book so far. Yeah, no offense, Frederica. She'll never listen to this. Ask but about the books, uh, if you ordered them. Yeah. I'm going to order them. I didn't because this week was just a little crazy. Uh, but I will. I, should I order like three sets? Oh, you want a personal set? I want a personal. You want set. a personal set? personal set? Okay. That means. Do you guys want a personal set, or you just want to read them online? Okay, that's fine. So I'll get another. I'll probably order the three or four, and then I'll sit and sell them to you and reimburse the church. And then we'll have the others just here in the library. Okay? All right. Let's close the prayer. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen the salvation which thou shalt prepare before the face of all people. A light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Christ is risen. Thank you, Father.